During the course of our exposition of the book of Revelation, we've turned often to Daniel's prophecy. We're turning there this morning first as we seek to uh, see the connection between uh, this prophecy and the book of Revelation, Daniel chapter 7. We're reading verses 9 through 14. We've read this passage uh, at least once, probably more than once. And then we'll turn to our text in Revelation 20. Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. The books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15 is our text. We'll begin reading at verse 4. Revelation 20, beginning at verse 4. Again, God's inspired and infallible word. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever." Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book 
was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if, ever, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be O Lord Most High, Elyon, the God of all righteousness and justice, the one, the only true God, the judge of all the earth, we look to you and we look to your word, which itself is righteousness and truth. We ask, O Father, that you would lead us in the truth that's before us. In this passage we're considering today, in the Revelation to John, that you would lead us into the truth through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The fourth section of Revelation 20 reveals the final judgment, the last day, the consummation of all things. In five verses, John records the end of time, the end of history as we know it. In the Gospels, Jesus uses a variety of images to describe this final judgment. In Matthew 13, he speaks about sifting the wheat from the tares or weeds. In the same chapter, he, he speaks about sorting good fish from bad as the net is dragged ashore. In Matthew 25, he speaks about separating sheep from goats. But here in Revelation 20, the imagery is taken from the court of law. God's plan has been fulfilled. His, his decrees have been fully executed. God now summons everyone into his courtroom, and the books are open. And those who appear before the throne are judged in accordance with divine justice. The division between believers and unbelievers is irrevocable and final. In these five verses, we're shown that the ones whose names are recorded in the book of life are with the Lord forever. But those who have rejected him, those whose names are not written in the book of life, will be cast into hell forever. These are the two realities and the only two eternal realities. Those whose names are written in the book of life, they're with the Lord forever. Those whose names are not written in the book, in the book of life, they're cast into everlasting hell and destruction therein. We'll look at two things here today. In verses 11 to 15, the judge on the great white throne and those judged before the great white throne. The judge on the great white throne and those judged before the great white throne. In the first place, we'll consider this judge. We've said this setting here is a courtroom and there is a judge and he's on uh, the throne, just as in Daniel, 
Uh, the books were opened here. The, 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 the law books are open. Uh, and the judge is on his throne. The last vision of chapter 20 begins with uh, that familiar formula, and I saw so many times. Uh, this is a vision to John, and uh, John says, I saw. John sees a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. John describes the throne using two adjectives, great and white. This throne is great and it's white. He uses this adjective great 80 times in the book of Revelation to signify something that's larger than life. Something that we can't fully comprehend. Something heavenly, something divine uh, that we can't fully grasp as human beings. The greatness of this throne is due to the one who sat on it. And the greatness of the judgment that will be rendered upon it. Psalm 9-7 says that God has established his throne for judgment. In, the, in a court of law, uh, there are places for the judge and there's uh, there, there is a place for uh, the defendant, for the accused. And though you may not be ready for this judgment, God's throne will be fully prepared for judgment. We, mu we must all appear before that throne according to God's appointment. The throne is great. The throne is white. The color uh, depicting not only in Revelation, in other places, but as we have been reading through the book of Revelation, in uh, this Revelation to John, white depicts purity, holiness, righteousness, and victory. But here it has the additional meaning of divine justice, that imminently describes this throne. It means there's not one speck, not one wrinkle that mars the whiteness of God's perfect justice and judgment from this great white throne. Now, John doesn't identify the one who's, who sits on the throne. Previously in Revelation, it's been implied uh, that the one seated on the throne in heaven is the Father. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 7. Chapter 6, verse 16. And when the apostle refers to this one on the throne, he avoids referring to him by name. In typical Jewish fashion, he describes, he describes him with the words, him who sat on it. He describes the great white throne. He makes reference to this great white throne. And then he, uh, he, he describes him who sat on it. He says, him who sat on uh, this throne. Furthermore, it's commonly understood that John is telling us what he sees. And as he tell us, tells us what he sees, uh, he has in mind Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days taking his seat upon the throne to render judgment described in the passage that we read this morning in chapter 7, verses 9 to 10 of his prophecy. These things have led some to conclude that him who sat on the throne here in Revelation 20 is, as previously in the book of Revelation, the Father. But there are several factors that lead us to the conclusion that the judge on the throne here in Revelation 20 is Jesus, the Son of Man. First, this judge is seated on a white throne, and one like a Son of Man has been portrayed previously in chapter 14, verse 14, seated on a white cloud. 
and a conquering king seated on a white horse in chapter 6 and verse 2 and chapter 9 and verse 11. Second and more to the point, there are numerous passages in the New Testament that testify to the fact that God the Father has given to his Son the authority to render judgment. Paul, you remember, preached on uh, on Mars Hill, his sermon there on Mars Hill, Acts 17, verse 31, that God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And the apostle wrote in 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom What Paul preached and what Paul wrote, Jesus himself had already said. John 5, 27, where he says that the Father gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then again in Matthew 25, verse 31 to 32, where he says, when the Son of Man comes in glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Third, the Ancient of Days vision in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9 says thrones were set up. Not a throne was set up, but thrones were set up. In the night vision... Daniel says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming up, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We know that Christ is on his throne. We know he ascended, that he sits on the throne. He's enthroned together with uh, the Father. So while this judgment spoken of here in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15 like all of God's works, is a work of the triune God, Scripture particularly ascribes this to Christ. In such passages as Matthew 28, 18 and Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10, make it abundantly clear that the honor of judging the living and the dead was conferred on Christ as mediator in Reward for his atoning work as a part of his exaltation. This is the, one of the crowning honors of his dominion as king. That dominion that was spoken of in Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7. This king, this one on the throne, is King Jesus. Commentators don't all acknowledge this, but the more I've reflected on this passage, the more I'm convinced that this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself in all his glory, seated on his great white throne in holiness, in purity, in righteousness, in justice, in victory, judging the living. And the dead. In this first verse, earth and heaven are pictured as being so terrified at Christ's great and awesome majesty 
and purity on the great white throne of judgment that they flee from his presence, disappearing from sight. God judges the human race in and through his Son, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the judge on the great white throne. Secondly, those judged before the great white throne. Next part of the vision, verse 12, John again begins as we're, uh, he characteristic, characteristically does, and I saw, I saw, John says, I saw the, I saw the dead. First thing to be said here is that John isn't writing of the general judgment of all people, but of the fate of the wicked, called here the dead. That's what the apostle calls the unbelieving dead in Revelation 20, verse 5. We read that today in the context. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. They have no part in the first resurrection, which is Christ's resurrection, remember, a spiritual resurrection, verse 5. They're spiritually dead. Although they've been physically raised up because they're standing before the great white throne, but theirs is a resurrection of judgment. It's true that all people that have ever lived, believing and unbelieving, will be resurrected on the last day. Those who haven't died, those who are not alive at Christ's coming his, on, on the last day in judgment, all who have died will be raised up from the dead, and that all will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be called to account for their deeds, including, of course, those who are alive when Christ returns. But it's notable that in this entire passage, Verses 11 to 15. Not one thing is said about the blessedness of those who stand before the great white throne. Those being referred to here, the dead. Nothing is said about their blessedness whatsoever. Nothing of a blessedness that we know will accrue to the righteous dead who are raised on that day. Nothing of the blessedness of those who have part in the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection, Christ's resurrection, because they're united to Christ. The first resurrection is a resurrection uh, uh, to, to life. It's, it's, a, it's symbolic of uh, regeneration, of conversion. It's a spiritual resurrection. Furthermore, these dead, as they were described back in verse 5, don't sit on thrones and reign with Christ Verse 4 says, Revelation resumes its blessings uh, uh, of believers. It's spoken of the blessings earlier uh, prior to this text and uh, and specifically in uh, those first six verses uh, uh, in John's vision. It addresses the blessings of uh, believers in coming to life uh, and reigning with Christ. It resumes... Speaking of the blessings of believers in chapter 21 and chapter 22, but here it's the, the dead are in particular, are, are the de- they're, they're the unrighteous dead. They're, they're those who haven't come to life. They experience none of these blessings. So, yes, they're standing. They're standing before the great white throne. 
but they're the walking dead. For their life after resurrection is a life only in semblance, as it was before in the place of the dead, Hades. They stand before the throne as so many guilty lawbreakers. There's no evidence that any of them was found written in the book of life. And John tells us, verse 12, he saw people of all classes and conditions, both the great and the small, standing before the throne. Human rank, wealth, and social standing will have no relevance whatsoever on the great day of judgment. Kings, presidents, prime ministers, emperors, dukes, and earls will fearfully stand beside doctors, nurses, lawyers, engineers, tradesmen, teachers, and homemakers. John, as he's describing this vision, says, the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, the membership role of the covenant in which the names of the elect are inscribed. Mentioned so often in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 5, 13, verse 8, 17, verse 8. The function of the book in in this particular context is simply to reveal that the names of the dead who are before the great white throne don't appear in the book of life. The apostle goes on in verse 12 to say the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their works. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their works. Now this sounds strange to evangelical ears, but scripture is full of such statements, even though we struggle with such statements and we struggle to reconcile them with what we know about justification by faith, which is not by works. Uh, It's by faith. And yet, for example, we find Psalm 62, 12, saying the Lord will render to a man according to his work. Jesus himself, Matthew 16, verse 17, passage closely connected with our text here in Revelation says the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. There are many more passages like these. The point of these passages and the point of our text, of course, is not salvation by works. It's damnation by works. The dead the ungodly dead will be judged according to their works, according to their deeds of unrighteousness. And while it's true that we're not saved by works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's also true that we're not saved without works, Ephesians 2, 10. The Christian is justified by faith alone, but genuine faith is never alone. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says so well, chapter 11, section 2, it's always accompanied with all other graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. John Murray wrote, Faith alone justifies, but a justified person with faith alone would be a monstrosity which never exists in the kingdom of God. It's a living faith that justifies, and living faith unites to Christ both in the virtue of his death and in the power of his resurrection.
in the judgment of this present vision, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, verse 13. All the places where the dead could be found. The thought conveyed here is a gathering of all the spiritually dead to the exclusion of those who came to life in the first resurrection, verse 4, which is a spiritual resurrection. And since it's immediately added that they were judged according to their works here in verse 13, it's evident that this is a a reference to uh, the resurrection of judgment that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. Jesus spoke of the first and second resurrections unto life in the John 5 passage. Remember uh, the first resurrection, a spiritual resurrection, second resurrection, a bodily resurrection. He first speaks of the spiritual resurrection, the first resurrection. Verse 25, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. That's the first resurrection, regeneration, conversion. In verse 25, the the dead refers to the elect, those whose names are written in the book of life. And then in John 5, 28 to 29, he speaks of the general resurrection, which is the second resurrection, the bodily resurrection, An hour is coming, and now is, Jesus said, uh, in which all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice and come forth, those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who did evil to a resurrection of death. The first resurrection, as presented in uh, Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6, is the resurrection of life. A resurrection unto life. The one presented here in Revelation 20, verse 13, is the second resurrection for which the wicked is a resurrection unto judgment, unto the second death. So John's gospel and the book of Revelation supplement one another. They confirm one another. Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that when Christ returns at the end of his mediatorial kingdom, when Christ comes in judgment on the last day, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so John saw death and Hades, which were also paired In chapter 1 and verse 18, chapter 6 and verse 8, thrown into the lake of fire, verse 14. Death is a state. Hades is a place. The place of the ungodly dead. The Jews understood Hades in the sense of the Hebrew Sheol, the abode of the dead. The lake of fire is symbolic of hell, which is the second death, verse 14. Spiritual death, eternal punishment in hell. Jesus uh, Jesus said uh, to the members of the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 11, "He he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. John said of the ones who have part in the first resurrection, chapter 20, verse 6, that the second death has no power over them. But those who stand before the great white throne in this particular vision, in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, those who stand before the judgment of Christ here, whose ungodly character 
is later described in chapter 21 and verse 8, where John says, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the beast and the false prophet have been thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 19, verse 20. The devil has been thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 20, verse 10. And now in chapter 20, verse 14, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Demonstrating that death and Hades are ultimately as powerless as any other force of evil. Ultimately, there's no power but that of God and of his Christ. This is the consummation we mentioned last week that... uh, Satan's release from his imprisonment in the abyss for a short time. Uh, we, uh, we, we spoke about uh, this, um, the last battle when uh, Satan is gathering forces, those forces that are active on earth to oppose Jesus and uh, his church and the devil being thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, We mentioned that these victories of Christ, uh, that the victory of Christ over the devil began uh, at his temptation in the wilderness uh, that uh, he, he, he is the one, he spoke of himself, that he, uh, he, he's the one who binds the strong men and plunders all of his possessions, that uh, Satan was defeated at the cross. But this is the final victory being spoken of here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. Death is that last foe. And Christ's victory is shown to be complete as death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And finally, John says in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All who are aligned with the devil, the beast, the false prophet, and those who had the mark of the beast, those who were associated with the beast, those who are associated with the world's system of evil, all of them will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus used a similar metaphor recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 6. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they will gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. The rest of the dead, the dead spoken of here, will never live. Because there's no life outside of Jesus Christ. Universalists have tried for centuries to evade the plain truth that Scripture slams the fiery inferno's lid shut over those who will not submit themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ as judge. From the foundation of the world, 
as Revelation describes uh, the book of life, it's, it's uh, the names in, being inscribed on the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those names were written, and from the foundation of the world, the dead do not have their names written in the book of life. The ungodly dead do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. The question arises, how can I be sure that my name is written in the book of life? How can you be sure that your name is written in this book? And the scriptures have a consistent answer. The consistent answer of the scriptures is that this certainty can only be achieved by believing in Jesus Christ. Those who exercise faith in Christ and who bear the fruit of that faith, the good deeds of faith, and who persevere in that faith until the end are assured of their election. As John Calvin put it, Christ is the mirror of our election. We can't read the book of life. We're not privy to the names written in the book of life, but we can look to Christ, and we can continue to look to Christ and His grace to bear those good fruits in us all our life long so that we do persevere to the end. The alternative to faith in Jesus Christ is also certain. an endless judgment in that fiery place in hell. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Chapter 10, here in verse, uh, chapter, uh, verse 10, rather, here in, in chapter 20. Their deeds, including their unbelief, will condemn them. Chapter 20, verses 12 And 13. The Bible says that ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So don't put off bending the knee to Christ Jesus, saying, I'll bow the knee to Jesus. Someday I will, but not yet. If you die without genuinely professing your faith in him by the Holy Spirit's work of grace, when you come to this point of judgment, when you appear before Jesus on his great white throne, he will cast you into hell. That's the testimony of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, can ensure Deliverance from the fiery lake of God's eternal wrath. Christians, even though we've not been talking much about Christians, can't escape Christ's scrutiny at his second coming on the last day. The Bible says that we'll all be called into account before this great white throne. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But if the sins of believers are recalled on that great day, however, it will only be in the context of God's amazing grace and to his own glory. Believers 
will not be condemned before the great white throne because Christ is their Savior. And because they stand before that throne robed in His righteousness. But they'll be there. That ought to wake us up as Christians because Christ on the throne, while not a terror to us, because of his righteousness, because we are partakers in that righteousness, nevertheless, that will be an awesome, yes, an awful in the sense of awe. That will be an awe-filled sight for believers in Jesus Christ. And if heaven and earth fled away, how much more awesome will it be to rational minds which are, which, which are observing this great and awesome Savior sitting on his throne? So we can't sit, sit back comfortably and say, well, I'm a Christian, so none of this really matters. I'm a Christian. This coming day of judgment has nothing to do with me. That's, that's not the case because we'll all be there. The Bible teaches. Let this understanding of the great white throne judgment motivate you as a Christian. Let it motivate you to bring the gospel to the lost. Knowing that our friends, our loved ones, our dear family members, as well as our neighbors and people we work with who have not submitted themselves to Christ, will appear before the great white throne, before Christ's great tribunal on the last day. And that should make us eager to invite them to come to Christ, to make Christ known to them. The certainty of judgment and the terror of the Lord ought to make us urgently persuasive in our gospel endeavors, in our appeals to the lost. We forget, I think. We look past the unbeliever and we say, well, they're sinning their lives away. I'm not supposed to cast my pearls before swine. You keep pressing these claims of Christ on those who don't know him. until there's no longer any time for you to press those claims upon them. Because there's nothing more certain. There's nothing more certain than the vindication of believers on the last day. There's nothing more certain than the awful, the terrible judgment of the lost rendered upon those who have not bowed the knee to this great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, seated upon the great white throne. Let's pray. Lord, these are awesome things. They are indeed awful things, awe-inspiring things, things of heaven, things of your great divinity that we certainly cannot fully grasp. And nevertheless, O oh Lord, you've given us some understanding as we have looked at this passage and as we've sought to see the corresponding 
texts in the rest of Scripture and how, they sh- how the Holy Spirit uses them to shine His light upon this text. And uh, we acknowledge, O oh Lord, this great judgment coming. And uh, we who have believed in Christ have fled from this judgment, uh, the judgment that is to come through faith in Him. Help us, O oh Lord, to keep looking to Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, by your grace, enable us by your grace to keep bearing a good work. We know that we don't, we'll never do this perfectly. And yet, O oh Lord, uh, we pray that by your grace, this would be uh, the, our, the characteristic of our lives, fruit-bearing to the glory of God and persevering to the end all the way to that great last day. And that final judgment, when we shall stand before you. Lord, look upon us with pity. We pray for those of our, among our friends, our, our loved ones, our family members, our co-workers. Oh, so many people with whom we've interacted over the years of our lives who have rejected Christ, who have scorned the name of Christ, who have denied Christ who have denied the reality of heaven and hell. We pray, O Lord, have mercy. Use the seeds that we've planted uh, in the lost. Use the word that we have spoken to the lost, uh, the witness that we've borne to them. Use it, O Father, to draw many to the Lord Jesus Christ. And grant, O Lord, that we would be mindful of this judgment day and live our lives in accordance with this great truth that will appear before the great tribunal of of the Lord Jesus and that we will be evaluated according to our works, our deeds, those good works that we have done. We pray, O Father, that you'd hear our prayer continue to add to our understanding of these deep and wondrous things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.